The book is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. If you've ever heard of the 10,000 hour rule, it came from this book. That rule says that if you spend 10,000 hours of specific practice, you will be a bona fide success. Or, in the parlance of the book, you'll be an outlier. That's about three hours a day, every day, for 10 years. This idea has been disputed uh, since the publishing of the book in 2008. But in the self-help genre, this book is popular. I think that idea still remains in the mainstream. Anyone who's a regular listener knows that I can be a pretty critical eye, but I rarely let that be the thing that defines a book for me. Outliers was so frustrating. Like, far beyond just being mildly frustrated, I went out and organized my thoughts into 10 specific points. For me, when I think about the podcast, I think about BBR. Brill's Book Review. But today, it's going to be BBR, Brill's Book Rebuttal. Number one, 10,000 hours. The central thesis of Malcolm's book is that success is not a product of individual effort, that agency has minimal, if any, input into how successful someone can be. And so he makes this point about 10,000 hours, and that is the point that the self-help community has lifted out. If I can put in 10,000 hours, then I will be a success. And as you might expect from the self-help community, it's kind of like unreasonably optimistic. But in the context of this book, he talks about 10,000 hours as an opportunity that not many people are given. He makes many examples, but to take a famous one, we can all get our arms around Bill Gates, who happened to be at the right age and in the right city in order to be able to take advantage of a free computing lab where he racked up 10,000 hours of experience. This is right before the tech boom, and Bill Gates, because he had those hours, was positioned to ride that wave to success. So Malcolm would say his unique context is what made him successful. Not the effort he put into 10,000 hours, but that he had those hours to begin with. So point number one is simply this. 10,000 hours is a choice. Everyone will spend 10,000 hours of their lives on something. It's just that some people will use those 10,000 hours over 10 years, over 20 years, over however long, and develop a specific skill. Now, will that guarantee success? That's a future point. But I disagree with his characterization that you have to be abnormally lucky to have the opportunity to spend 10,000 hours on something. Number two, his argument doesn't account for the fact of Bill Gates putting in the time for the hours. What he doesn't answer and what's frankly unknowable is how many of these opportunities are given, but not taken. Like how many average normal people are given one of these once in a century types of opportunities, but they pass it up. And if they were Bill Gates, they didn't sign up for the computer lab. And so the idea that Bill Gates is uniquely successful because he had this opportunity doesn't account for the fact that opportunity might exist for other people and isn't taken. Number three, Malcolm makes a lot of noise about specific characteristics that allow people to take advantage of these opportunities. For the sake of simplicity, sticking to the Bill Gates example, Malcolm says that these Silicon Valley types had to be a specific age in order to be available for this opportunity that came up. If he had been older, he might have been out of college and therefore not available to be at the computer lab at the right time. Or if he had been younger, he might have still been in high school and the opportunity might have passed him by. But because he happened to be whatever, 18 years old, he was the ideal age. Point number three is that his argument offers no predictive value. For the Silicon Valley types, 
yes, there's a clear correlation that these 18-year-olds who happen to be in the right cities were able to take advantage of the opportunity. But does that mean we should all only want to be 18 years old to take advantage of whatever chances? Well, absolutely not. You'll never know what age you need to be in order to take advantage of the opportunity. Like, what if someone might have been a great president, but they were two years younger than the age limit? Or what if after retirement, someone had this great opportunity to paint the next Mona Lisa, but because they couldn't retire at the right time, the chance passed them by. And so he makes the argument that it's being in the right place at the right time, but that's very fatalistic because we never know what combination of circumstances and life events are going to be the ones we need to be to be able to be successful. Fourth is the issue I take with looking back in time and saying that, oh, of course this person could do it because X, Y, and Z circumstances. But today it's unobtainable because of these other things. But that same argument would have been used at the time too. I think it was just as unobtainable back then, but these specific people found a way through. And so now their stories stand out and we're able to go back and analyze them, but we don't have that same hindsight for 2022. And so we just live in this world of like, oh, these things are impossible. Ignoring the fact that there are people today finding a way to make it through college without student loans or whatever the impossible task is. And in 20 years, we'll look back at them and be like, oh, of course they could do it. Because at the time, Starbucks would pay for your diploma through an online college if you worked there. It always looks easy in hindsight, but these people were successful because they found a way through, even though everyone was saying it's unobtainable. Five, going back to the Silicon Valley ages. He's trying to figure out what the ideal age for somebody to get in on the tech boom is. So he jumps through all these hoops and comes to a working hypothesis, quote unquote, of what that ideal age should be. He says, oh, everybody needs to be born late 1954 or 1955. And so he goes through all these arguments proving why that would be the case. And then at the end of the chapter, he presents all these people who fit the hypothesis that he formed. And it's like all of the top Silicon Valley people were born late 1954 or 1955. But I think it's the opposite. I think he knew or found out all the people in Silicon Valley were born in the same age range and then worked his way back to prove why that was the case. It would be as if I looked up the weather and I saw it was going to rain. And then I went up to you and said, oh, I've been looking at the precipitation and the wind patterns and the temperature. And based on these things, I hypothesize that it's going to rain later. And then you and I look it up and sure enough, it's going to rain. Well, yeah, of course, because I knew the answer before I built the argument. So I was leading you down a path where I had the solution all worked out. It's misleading, and he's trying to take credit for a scientific process that he did not do. Six, Chris Langdon, colloquially known as the world's smartest man, is presented as somebody who was just as smart as all these other geniuses, but because he didn't have the right opportunities, he wasn't as successful. But I looked into this one. Chris is apparently as smart as he's claimed to be, but there's some other fun facts about Chris. For example, he put out the cognitive theoretical model of the universe. I, I didn't look into it, but in my mind, it's like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. What is the answer to life, the universe, and everything? Chris Langdon said, oh, here's the answer. I've got it. Which is fine. He's a smart guy. Maybe he has it. Chris has also claimed that the Bush administration staged the 9-11 attacks to distract the public from learning about his theory. So, yeah. It might be true that Chris did not have the same opportunities to be successful that other people had, but it also might be true that Chris had some other stuff going on that was maybe in the mix as well. Malcolm cherry-picked this story so that the evidence fit the narrative he wanted to tell. Seven. 
he does an analysis of a culture here in the States and says how their actions today were predicted by the culture of their ancestors who used to live across the Atlantic Ocean hundreds of years ago. That culture? White people who live in the South. But I think Malcolm knows he's walking a very thin line on that one. Eight. Now this one I actually agree with. He goes and makes a quite persuasive argument about how kids having a summer vacation is not beneficial towards education. And this disproportionately impacts poorer kids that don't have the same ability to go to summer camps and get these different experiences. Uh, so they come back to school having unlearned some of the things that they spent learning last year. Whereas kids with more privilege were able to expand their mind and participate in more activities that help them grow and develop. So I 100% agree with that argument. I think it's a good one. Nine. Going back to the 10,000 hour rule, he says that this is the reason the people were successful. They were lucky enough to have 10,000 hours to practice. But the Beatles were one of his other examples. They apparently played an eight hour set seven nights a week in some seedy parts of Europe while they were still up and coming. And that's how they got the practice in, which helped them become the Beatles. The problem is the Beatles have read Malcolm Gladwell's book and said, well, yeah, that's true for us, but there were plenty of other bands playing those same schedules that did not obtain the same level of success. What they're saying is there's something more going on there besides just the opportunity to practice. And I think the same example applies with Bill Gates. If you unplugged him from the Silicon Valley at the time and plugged in someone else, then Malcolm would say, oh, they're going to be just as successful. But that's probably not true. There's probably something else about the person. I don't think Malcolm is wrong about some people being luckier and having greater chances to get ahead. In the last analysis, I think it is a, it's a unique combination of a specific person and specific opportunities that create what we would call success. Number 10, last rebuttal. This is not so much a philosophical argument as it is, let's call it stylistic difference. Look at the cover of this book. It should be the thumbnail image of the episode. But just in case you're not able to see it, it's got a red cover, and it says Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell. It's got a bunch of dots on it, like you would see dots on a graph. Like, you know, outliers. You get it. These dots are clustered in the middle, clearly outlining what's a triangle type of shape. Look at that triangle, and tell me that's not in the shape of a poop emoji. I think we're done here. I always say these episodes are going to be like five minutes and they never are.